This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. In today's talk, what I'm planning to do is give you a very quick overview in the beginning of what we mean by integrative mental health care so that we're all on the same page with basic definitions. And then what I'd like to do is um, speak a little bit more in detail about the Ayurvedic approach to health and well-being. Um, but I do want to say that the integrative mental health world incorporates a lot of different approaches and a lot of different uh, pathways to healing. I really invite you to listen to all the speakers in our series. And if there's a particular approach that really seems to resonate for you, um, I um, invite you to reach out uh, to the speaker or to follow up on the resources that are present at the end of the talk um, so that you can learn more about that particular uh, avenue to healing. Um, and in fact, at the end of my talk today, I'm going to list, uh, I actually have listed some really great overview um, books um, that you can buy on Amazon if you want uh, that look at integrative, mouth care, uh, integrative mental health care as a whole and also about Ayurvedic medicine if you want to re read more about that. Um, we're also going to be starting up an Ayurvedic uh, lifestyle and stress management group at the Osher Center. So if any of you are interested in uh, joining that group, we're probably going to be uh, getting that run up and running in a couple of months. So please do um, send me an email. So my email is here on the bottom. Uh, so feel free to contact me on my email if you'd like to um, find out a little bit more about the Ayurveda treatment options at the Osher Center. So the wonderful 20th century poet, um, W.H. Auden, called our modern era the age of anxiety. And his, actually his best-known poetic work of that same name really describes the quest in the modern age to find substance, meaning, and identity in what's become an increasingly technologically driven and industrialized world in which our old community structures have really frayed and fragmented. Um, according to the National Institute of Mental Health, 19% of Americans in any given year suffer from anxiety disorders, and then nearly 7% are actually diagnosed with major depression. And then for all the rest of us, there's basically just too much stress in our life, um, according to the NIMH, especially during our prime productivity years uh, between ages 18 and 55. Now, most of the folks that are getting diagnosed with anxiety and depressive disorders are really just suffering from exactly the same stressors that all of us are uh, coping with, but perhaps um, just uh, responding in a way that is a little bit you know, more uh, troubling and more le leading to more difficulty in functioning. Um, but it's basically an issue of how to cope with that stress and how to meet that stress in a way that we can assimilate and digest it instead of having it... Um, sort of lead to such a decline in functioning. And that's really one of the goals of today's talk, to really, uh, the series is actually to, to discuss how we can do that. Um, now, people, I have I've got a table here from uh, the Stress in America study that the American Psychological Association puts out every couple of years. You can see the top seven sources of stress <laughs> for most Americans. You know, and what I just find really um, sort of impressive about this list is how many of these are actually uh, factors that we have control over in terms of how we want to meet a health crisis, how we deal with our nutrition how we deal with sleep or modulate our own um, media overload. So there's, despite the fact that there's a lot of stress, there's also a lot of ways in which we can meet that stress in a proactive way. 
and um, we'll get into some of that in just a minute. Um, I do want to say that it's been noted that, of course, every era, every century has its own stresses. You know, people that grew up in World War II in London were dealing with, you know, having bombs, you know, dropped in their residences and having everything that they held near and dear, you know, scattered to the winds. So each era has its own set of epidemics, its own natural disasters, its own warfare, and so on that creates stress. But what's really unique about our present moment in this current era is really that um, there is such a huge, the, the, the rate of change is happening so much faster than at any other time in history. Right now, in any given year, the number of people that you're probably going to be meeting in the course of this year are going to be the most diverse group of people that you're bound to meet compared to any other previous generation. In terms of diversity of backgrounds, diversity of values, diversities of knowledge, skill, language, culture, and so on. Um, so, while diversity is wonderful, and there's lots of studies that have shown that actually diverse work groups are more creative and more productive than sort of monoculture groups. But still, that does present a kind of challenge in terms of how to get along and how to reach out for support when the folks that are around you may not necessarily share the same background or the same values as they may have done, you know, two or three generations prior. Um, and then in addition to that, um, the rate of acceleration in terms of innovation is just get making a lot of people feel like they're getting left behind, particularly um, older people that are 75 years old and plus. A lot of them, for example, my parents just are not really interested in learning about the Internet or how to navigate that world. And so that just kind of excludes them from a whole realm of activity that goes on during family gatherings and so on. And um, and this, this type of acceleration and innovation is probably only going to get worse um, in our own lifetimes because the rate of change is getting faster and faster. And so that feeling of being excluded and, and sort of being out of touch is going to increase. And that also adds to a feeling of stress and alienation because we're not able to reach out and connect with people as easily as we might have done in the past. And then, you know, a lot of people point out to social media, you know, like Facebook, and, so, and they believe that this might be an antidote and that this might be a way to actually increase our sense of connection and social support. But there's actually been a couple of very interesting studies that have come out just in the last few years which actually show that that may not necessarily be the case. Uh, in one study that was done with young college students, it showed that uh, the more more adults, young adults, used Facebook over a two-week period, the more their life satisfaction scores declined, uh, whereas interacting with more people face-to-face -face didn't actually have that same negative outcome. Um, and then likewise, there was another, um, another study that was done among young adults in the U.S., and it showed that uh, college students who were more frequently on Facebook actually had higher um, risk of developing feelings of envy and resentment towards their peers, and that these feelings of envy were then found to correlate with a higher risk of depression. And part of that is because when you know, we want to be, you know, it's very natural when you're a young person to want to be the best at something or to be known for something, you know, and when you were previously in a small community of maybe your little local college or, you know, your local town, it was easier to be the best at something. But when you're now competing with 7 billion people on the planet who are all posting to Facebook and talking about their accomplishments, it's really easy to compare your own accomplishments and, and to find that, you know, somehow you're falling short. And uh, that is actually one of the downsides of being so globally connected. So anyway, enough of that topic. But just to say that there's a lot of stresses and that there's a lot of uh, modern reasons for that stress that previous generations really haven't encountered. 
So how do we cope with this? You know, how do we meet these challenges um, so that we can adapt and grow and transform and change in a positive direction? You know, our bodies and minds actually have a natural wisdom, a natural intelligence. They have an intrinsic knowledge, uh, even programmed at the cellular level, as to how to grow, heal, maintain balance, restore homeostasis, and regenerate. But as humans, um, and, and as humans, we've evolved over eons with these capabilities, which is partly what's allowed us, you know, to flourish on the planet. But in the modern age, when we tend to suppress these adaptive intrinsic mechanisms, which allow us to restore and regain homeostasis, for example, by inadequate attention to nutrition, nutrition, exercise, or sleep, or by ingesting toxins, either via our environment or via our food, then all of these stress disorders begin to abound. And there's been a marked increase in the, in the incidence and prevalence of various stress-related disorders. And these include anxiety and depressive disorders but also cancer, heart disease, stroke, many other conditions that in the medical world are known to be moderated very significantly by stress. So the path to our healing lies in supporting our intrinsic restorative capacity that we already have. And the key to doing this is really to cultivate self-awareness. This is one of the, the, the central points of this, of this talk. So... You know, the name of my talk was the Mandala of Healing, and I wanted to explain a little bit why I use that particular um, metaphor. Um, what we're looking at here is called the, the Sri Chakra Mandala. But in general, the Mandala is a Sanskrit word, which means circle, and it represents the universe. The patterns within the mandala are usually very balanced and symmetrical and harmonized, symbolizing how we are all connected and part of the wider universe. Now, this particular mandala that I have here, um, that I'm showing here, it's a very ancient form that's been found throughout India, Nepal, and Tibet uh, for millennia. And mandalas like this have traditionally been used within yogic practices and other contemplative practices to cultivate self-awareness, as a tool for cultivating self-awareness. Um, I'm just going to give you like a really brief taste of what one of these yogic meditative practices focused on the mandala might look like. Um, so what we would do is we would start by focusing our attention at the center of the mandala, which represents pure consciousness, and then gradually extend our awareness outward from the center expanding and multiplying into the many facets of the cosmos. And then we shift and we move our awareness back inwards from the perimeter towards the center, integrating and concentrating the cosmic elements back into a single point of awareness. Practices like this help us put our ego consciousness into proper relationship with the totality, and we reconnect with our center of awareness, which is our ground of serenity, what Trungpa called our basic goodness. It's called Atma in Vedic traditions. It's called a lot of different things, but you know, the, the idea is that this is kind of our true nature, and that this true nature is one that is permeated by peace, a sense of fullness, and a sense of just calm. And so this is uh, the, the place from which 
we can meet the stressful conditions of our lives and, and, and respond to them in an adaptive way. You know, Carl Jung, I put up this quote by Carl Jung, who's a, a very famous uh, 20th century psychiatrist. Um, he actually first learned about mandalas during his travel to India in the 1930s, and he immediately began the practice of drawing mandalas during times of psychic turmoil to help guide him toward balancing and synthesizing all of the competing demands in his life. And then thereby, by doing this, um, really coming on a creative new approach for actually being able to transcend these multiplicities and being able to draw himself back into his uh, center of awareness so that he could meet these challenges in a creative way. So throughout this talk, I'm going to be presenting information to you whenever possible in the form of a mandala, and I'm going to encourage you to keep the idea of cultivating self-awareness as the central starting point of each mandala, no matter what the therapy or the practices that we're going to be discussing. All right, so as you can see from this mandala of healing, Integrative mental health care really arises from the intersection or confluence of three different circles, which are the self-care practices, complementary and alternative medicine, as well as conventional um, psychiatry and mental health care. So integrative mental health care activates your own ability to emotionally heal. Remember what I was talking about, getting back to supporting those intrinsic restorative mechanisms that, that work from the cellular level on up. And these integrative mental health care activities basically support you in staying strong and resilient in the face of emotional challenge. This model really puts you at the center of promoting your own well-being while drawing on a dedicated team of integrative, complementary, and conventional practitioners to support you in your journey. So integrative health care really emphasizes a holistic, patient-focused, or in this case, you know, like person-focused approach to healthcare and wellness, and includes all the different dimensions um, that uh, that we are that we're going to be talking about here: mental, emotional, functional, spiritual, social, and community. The use of integrative. Uh, healthcare approaches um, actually has grown significantly in even conventional care settings in the United States in the past decade or so, and it's now expanded to include pain management for military personnel and veterans in the VA medical system, as well as relief of symptom relief of cancer symptoms in many many oncology centers throughout the United States, as well as community public health programs that are intended to promote healthy behaviors. So now let's look more closely at each of the three circles comprising this mandala. So the very first circle I want to really discuss um, is the essentials of self-care, because this is really the starting point for any kind of integrative mental health approach. Uh, We really need to make you the center of your own um, wellness plan. And uh, and, And when you do that, Um, you'll really be in a place where you'll be more resilient and able to handle the stresses that life throws at you. Conversely, you know, if we're already feeling depleted by whatever our uh, physical and emotional demands are and we're feeling drained, then we're not going to be able to meet those challenges very effectively. So the importance of self-care to our overall mental health just really cannot be overstated. Um, So there's a whole uh, 
you know, on this little mandala, there's a whole bunch of different petals in terms of what the essentials of self-care comprise. Um, and you can see that some of them, like the mind-body connection, actually overlap with complementary and alternative practices. But the reason that they overlap is that a lot of these can obviously be done on your own, practiced on your own at home. Like if you are going to go to a yoga class and you're taking a yoga class for stress reduction or anxiety reduction, you might say that that's a complementary and alternative practice because it's being taught or administered at the Osher Center and you know, you're actually going elsewhere, you know, going to a different person to get it. But then when you learn that yoga and then you bring it home and you practice you know, in your own room at home, then it's really part of self-care. So you can see like how there's a, a lot of overlap in, in many of these approaches. Now, I wanted to, uh, there's a lot of data emerging actually about how important these self-care practices really are in cultivating mental health and improving mental health outcomes. And there's no way I'm going to be able to get into all of the data, but I'm just going to just talk very briefly on two practices or two arenas of that mandala, which I really hope that um, you can examine and maybe start exploring in your own life as a means of impacting your wellness. Um, and those two are spiritual practices and getting regular sleep. You know, spirituality and religion has often been left out of many, many mental health recommendations. But lately, these recommendations are starting to come back into the picture in a lot of uh, holistic healthcare communities, including here at the Osher Center. And it, you know, whatever your personal belief systems or choices might be regarding spirituality or religion, you know, try not to ignore this side of yourself. There's a lot of options for how to explore this concept without getting into a particular religious doctrine or dogma. For example, one of the very simple spiritual practices is just called count your blessings. So taking a few minutes every night, you know, before you go to sleep or perhaps in the morning when you wake up, to say something along these lines, you know, out loud or just mentally closing your eyes and saying something along these lines. You know, thank you, my eyes, for giving me the gift of vision today. Thank you, my body, for allowing me to sit so long <laughs> and to be able to read and study and do whatever it is I need to do today. You know, and, and thank myself for embarking on a journey of wellness and committing to changing my lifestyle practices and so on. So it's just a way of sitting down and basically creating a space for expressing gratitude for all that you already have. And numerous studies have shown how important such a simple gratitude exercise actually can be in terms of promoting a sense of happiness and well-being, opening the doors to more relationship with others in your community, because these studies show that when you're talking with a thankful, appreciative, grateful person, more others are more likely to gravitate towards you and have a relationship with you than, you know, if you're kind of resentful and and angry all the time. And just having that simple gratitude ex exercise, you know, once a day also has been shown to reduce, you know, your experience of toxic emotions like envy and resentment. And then very importantly, you know, there's actually been randomized controlled trials which actually show that it can prevent the development of everyday stress into something more uh, difficult and painful and challenging like post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and, you know, the studies were actually done in veterans who had um, gone through wartime, and they've also been done in uh, civilians who experienced terrorist attacks during the 9-11 period, and it showed that being able to engage in uh, gratitude exercises or displaying gratitude for the things that you have 
have really does protect against the development of PTSD. And then the other uh, area of self-care that I wanted to just touch on briefly really is uh, having regular sleep and how important regular sleep really is and being able to, to learn and process new information. A lot of times it's really tempting to skimp on sleep because we have so much work to do and we think that that's one area where we can cut a few corners. But actually, by cutting those corners, you're probably, um, you're probably impeding the very process of trying to learn and encode new information that you're trying to do. Um, now, normally every night when we sleep, uh, we alternate in these 90-minute cycles between two phases of sleep. Um, sleep that's called, you know, quiet sleep, deep sleep, where we actually, where the temperature drops and muscles relax, heart rate and breathing slow down. And then there's a second phase of sleep, which is called rapid eye movement sleep. And here, people actually, you know, dream, but the body temperature, blood pressure, heart rate, and breathing actually increases during this period. And studies have shown that the REM sleep that, you know, REM sleep actually enhances learning and memory and contributes to emotional health in a whole myriad of ways related to release of neuroendocrine signals and other um, cellular mechanisms. So for those of us who are like cutting off those last couple of hours of sleep, it's probably the time when um, it's most important for encoding and learning new information. So really try to get a full seven and a half to eight hours every night and do that on a regular basis. Because they have done studies showing, like, oh, can you catch up on sleep on the weekends? You know, like, go without during the week and catch up on the weekends and actually have that serve the same function. But uh, the data says, no, it doesn't work like that. Uh, the second wheel, the second mandala that uh, I had put up there in that integrative mental health care uh, has to do with complementary and alternative medicine. And according to the latest national surveys that have been done, the last one was in 2012, uh, more than 30% of Americans and even 12% of children actually use some type of health care approach that's considered to be complementary and alternative in a given year. Um, and what do we exactly mean by complementary and alternative? It's actually a bit fluid in its definition. It simply refers to all healthcare practices, products, um, which and systems which actually aren't currently considered part of mainstream Western medicine. So it's fluid and changes. So over time, what might have been you know not part of conventional care actually gets eventually incorporated into conventional care as perhaps evidence base builds up and um, physicians and clinicians are more inclined to actually incorporate it uh, into their treatment plan due to that evidence base. Um, so TENS units are actually a good example of that. Um, you know, 20 years ago, they were just coming out. Those were those little electronic devices that send a little electrical impulse across a wound. And um, when they first came out, people were quite skeptical about their use because they were thinking, well, how does you know, a little electro, creating a little electromagnetic field across a wound, you know, on, on top of the skin actually create and promote wound healing. But then after, you know, a lot of data showed that it actually does, it's now become incorporated into conventional care and no longer considered to be, you know, a CAM modality, complementary and alternative modality. 
Um, but um, I also wanted to say a lot of times people use complementary and alternative medicine interchangeably, um, and they're actually um, not the same thing. It refers to two different concepts. So, But it's not referring to a particular modality, but to the way the modality is used. So when a non-mainstream practice, such as acupuncture, is used together with conventional care, like let's say in the treatment of pain, if acupuncture is being used along with your um, NSAID or opiate medication, then we say that the acupuncture is being used as a complementary um, uh, approach. However, if the person wants to not use opiates and wants to see if they can rely only on the acupuncture to get by with their post-op pain, then we say acupuncture is being used as an alternative healing modality. So it's all in how it's being used. And, you know, what's really important to understand is that the vast majority of Americans that are using CAM approaches are also using conventional care approaches. So they're not actually abandoning one for the other. They seem to be using them in their own lives together. So it makes a whole lot of sense for us as clinicians to actually uh, coordinate you know, complementary and uh, conventional approaches together in a mindful um, conscious way so that we can really improve our patients' lives. Um, the, the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, actually categorizes the whole range of uh, CAM therapies out there into three big uh, sort of categories. Um, the by, and, uh, by, by far the largest category is, is what we call the mind and body therapies. And uh, these, are, um, these actually used to be broken down into three different subcategories, but now they're all considered in one basket. But these are basically um, uh, most of the, the mind-body practices that you've probably heard about, like meditation, yoga, tai chi. But they also um, uh, include now uh, the uh, manual medicine therapies like chiropractic, or massage where you actually lay hands, um, therapeutic touch where you might lay hands on someone to affect a healing, and then also the more subtle energy therapies such as Reiki, magnets, use of chakras, qigong, and so on. So all of these therapies uh, fall into the mind and body category because we're basically using a combination of either body-based or primarily uh, mental-based treatment approaches to try to affect a change in the whole system, in the whole organism, in the whole person. Um, then the other two big categories are biological therapies, um, which are vitamins, probiotics, herbs, and so on. And these are probably the single most commonly used form of CAM by most Americans. But mind and body therapies are actually the most often used by people to treat mental health um, uh, issues and to try to promote a sense of wellness. So mind-body therapies get a lot of focus in terms of uh, mental health research. And then the last category is alternative medical systems, which really refer to entire whole medical systems, which um, basically arose indigenously, most often in cultures um, outside of the West. And examples of this are uh, Ayurveda, Chinese medicine, or homeopathy. Although actually homeopathy and naturopathy also have some roots in the European tradition. Um, but what these what distinguishes these systems from uh, from complement from the other CAM approaches is that they're intended, you know, from from this particular paradigm standpoint, they're intended to treat the full range of health and healing concerns. So both maintaining wellness as well as supposedly to heal um, all different forms of disease and disorder. Um, so they are considered to be standalone by the practitioners of those, of those particular modalities. 
which doesn't mean that they can't be combined in some ways with um, Western medicine. And in fact, if you look at those, many of those mind and body therapies, they're actually derived from these alternative medical systems. So meditation and yoga are very much derived from Ayurveda. You know, using acupuncture or Chinese herbs really comes from the Chinese medical system and so on. So there just has been this burgeoning of research uh, on various CAM therapies um, because of all of the interest now that's been generated um, uh, by the general public using all these therapies. And so there's been a lot of interest in the medical community to actually research these practices because so many Americans are uh, taking them up. So I just really cannot get into the full range of the uh, data uh, that's out there, but I just wanted to just put up this one slide, which just shows how, um, with, with major depression, MDD is major depression, how many different varieties of complementary therapies have now been studied to the point that they're actually considered to be either a very reasonable adjunctive uh, to, an, that means an add-on treatment to conventional care, or can even be potentially standalone treatments in some cases. Um, you know, and 20 years ago, a slide like this would have been a lot harder to make because we just didn't have the data to support it. But because of the amount of research that's come out um, in the last uh, few years, um, this is really possible. My own area of research interest is actually in yoga therapy for major depression. And uh, we conducted a study at the Usher Center, which was just published about 18 months ago. And it showed that we can actually use hatha yoga, an eight-week hatha yoga practice of 90 minutes twice a week, um, to treat moderate major depression with really good effects. And this was used as a monotherapy with no other add-on treatments. Um, and we were actually able to get a significant remission rates from, from our participants. So, you know, studies like this are really adding to the evidence base for a whole bunch of different CAM practices. I, now, I wanted to now turn to the third circle in our mandala of healing that I had initially put up. And the third circle has to do with personalized medicine. And currently, um, our conventional model of care is really shifting in this direction. Um, and it's a very, very exciting shift. Um, so up to this point, conventional care has largely been based on this idea that there is a standard of care for a particular diagnosis or condition. So if you have major depression, if you have post-traumatic stress disorder, if you have you know, stage four of this type of cancer, there's a particular standard of care that's developed and particular protocols for how to treat that condition or that stage of disease. And the way that these standards of care are derived are by doing these large-scale studies and then doing meta-analyses that, that sort of average out the response rates from all of these separate studies. And so we're, uh, so by doing these very, very large-scale analyses, they're called meta-analyses of all these studies, we're able to get some idea about whether uh, a particular intervention might be effective or not for that particular condition. And then the theory is that um, everyone should basically 
be getting the same care based on these treatment guidelines or standards of care derived from these clinical trials. But personalized medicine is recognizing the limitations of that model and really starting to move um, towards a very different model. And this model is saying that, um, that we can actually best manage a patient's health not by looking at their specific disease and then treating the disease, but actually looking at the person that's having that disease and being able to look at that unique uh, you know, genetic makeup of that individual, as well as their lifestyle, their diet, their environment, and so on, and put all of this together to basically come up with what's called a targeted treatment plan that really is best suited for that person's individual, you know, makeup. And so this has really the potential to tailor therapy with the best possible response and the highest safety margin of safety uh, for patients. Um, and it really holds a lot of promise for improving health care and also lowering costs because it makes sense, right? Because if you're able to tell ahead of time if a particular individual is maybe not going to respond to a particularly expensive cancer treatment, then instead of doing that treatment and then having it fail and then move on to another treatment, which is a kind of trial and error basis, uh, which a lot of modern medicine, unfortunately, um, has built into it, you know, the idea is that you could streamline that care and be more effective in doing targeted treatment. And in particular, what's really transforming this field is um, translational research, DNA research, um, which ends in the word omics, so genomics, proteomics, metabolomics, uh, to really study the contribution of genes, proteins, and metabolic pathways to our individual unique human physiology. And one branch of all of this is called pharmacogenetics, um, and it's a field of study that examines the impact of gene variations on the response to medications. And so this, uh, the approach is really aimed at tailoring drug therapy that's most appropriate for a particular individual based on their genetic makeup. I'm just going to give you a quick slide here to, to demonstrate, you know, sort of like the old paradigm within conventional care and, uh, and the current paradigm. So in the old paradigm, as I said, uh, without personalized medicine, uh, you basically come up with this like one standard of care that treats a particular condition. All these patients have a particular uh, condition, let's say major depression, and they're all you know, uh, told that this is the standard therapy for major depression, and they're all given relatively similar doses, same medication, or same course of CBT, same 16-week course of CBT for everybody. And then, um, you know, it turns out that in the first round of any uh, conventional care for major depression, only about one-third of people actually respond. So about a third of people get some benefit, that's actually considered to be good enough to be considered remission. Um, so that means near absence of all of their symptoms. You know, about a third of people might get no, you know, might get very little benefit. And then another third might actually have really significant side effects, you know, very significant side effects, which actually cause them to not only not respond, but maybe to discontinue treatment early or, you know, to suffer from, um, you know, really debilitating vision issues or loss of sex drive or other things that really make a huge difference in their quality of life. Now, what we would do with the personalized medicine approach is that we would actually develop a molecular profile for that particular individual. And that molecular profile looks at their genetic code, 
looks at various portions of that genetic code that are known to be important for metabolizing a variety of, uh, let's say, antidepressant medications. And then uh, we also look and see how those particular, how that particular set of genes for that individual may also interact with the diet that they're eating, with the level of exercise that they're doing, with the particular maybe you know levels of air pollution in the in the city that they live in, and how all of those actually end up um, you know uh, affecting the expression of those genes and the expression of um, and how and the expression of those genes then affects how they metabolize the medication. So this this molecular profile gives us a very specific way of understanding how they may respond to a particular medication treatment. So with this personalized approach. Um, we take that same group of patients that was here, and we you know, do a whole bunch of uh, analyses on uh, various body tissues, and then we come up with a molecular profile, and then we actually give uh, the person here in the green you know, a particular uh, therapy. Here, the person, maybe this person, you know, these, these folks in blue, actually maybe we discover that they're not good metabolizers for any of those antidepressant medications. So maybe these guys would be excellent candidates for a CBT trial or perhaps even for a complementary and alternative medicine trial because um, maybe they don't have the insurance to cover CBT or maybe psychotherapy just isn't their cup of tea. And if they don't actually have, um, you know, uh, markers that show that they're they're going to effectively respond to medication therapy. It makes a whole lot of sense to try non-pharmacological therapies. And then you know maybe this individual here. We actually have uh, very early data showing that with functional MRI scans, we might be able to predict ahead of time which people may respond well to conventional care, which is either which 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 set of people might respond well to. Uh, medication therapy for depression, which to psychotherapy, and then which may not respond to either. So maybe the person here in blue would actually fall into this category, and those might be the perfect people to actually try a CAM modality with, particularly if that's something that they're drawn towards doing and are interested in doing. So you can see how this really could uh, revolutionize you know, the way that uh, conventional care is done. And how is it, you know, I brought up the word epigenetics in that previous slide in terms of understanding. There's, there's the genes that we're born with. And these genes, you know, the genetic code basically doesn't change, you know, over our lifetime. But there are these interesting um, uh, molecules called uh, molecular tags, which actually affect the way genes are expressed. So it, those, these molecular tags actually can turn on or turn off genes so that whatever it is, whatever the proteins and so on that the, that, that particular gene codes for are either allowed to be expressed or they're inhibited. And epigenetics is basically the study of how these modifications in DNA, in DNA can be changed uh, based on molecular tags. So it, epigenetics isn't about the study of the underlying genetic code, but about how that genetic code can actually be modulated. 
And, um, you know, for those of you in the audience who are wanting to geek out and really want to understand, like, how do these molecular tags actually turn on and turn off uh, genes? There, I, I put in some references at the end in my, uh, in my reference list. But uh, basically, um, there's a number of different ways, but, but one of the two biggest pathways is really by methylating. Um, DNA, so adding a methyl group to the DNA, or by adding either a, an acetyl group or a methyl group to the, the tails of the proteins called histones that DNA wraps around. So these are one of the two big uh, pathways for how we're able to actually turn a gene on or off. Because um, if you just want to visualize for a minute, like a strand of DNA, uh, I think the previous slide actually had a little picture of that. So right here. It's a strand of DNA that's actually like wrapped around a histone um, molecule. And so you can see that when, when the DNA is wrapped really tightly around this histone molecule, it's actually not open or accessible for being translated and transcribed by messenger RNA. So if you're able to change how tightly or loosely the DNA is wound around that histone, it actually opens up the possibility of being able to access that particular gene for transcription purposes. And this can actually work in both a positive and a negative direction. So for example, we, all of us in our DNA, have innately tumor suppression genes. Okay, so these genes actually uh, code for proteins, which then uh, go on to affect various cellular mechanisms in our body, so that we keep a kind of natural check on cancer cells from overgrowing in our body. And if a tumor suppressor gene is turned off, that's not a good thing, right? Because that actually allows for cancer cells to grow uninhibited. On the other hand, if a gene is, you know, turned off, which is not actually producing a creative, you know, which is, let's say, producing um, uh, a sort of a, a like a, in Alzheimer's, it's like producing, you know, a molecule, um, some type of protein which is actually cluttering up the synapses in the brain and actually adding to difficulties with cognitive functioning. We don't actually want that gene to get expressed. And so in that case, turning off the gene would be a good idea. So it, it works in both directions depending on what the nature of that gene is, is uh, coding for. But this whole idea that we can affect our genetic code uh, without, and the way it gets expressed without actually changing our DNA is a very powerful and very revolutionary, you know, sort of paradigm in our time. Because what we know is that epigenetics, this, this study of how genes get turned on and off, it turns out that the... Um, these molecular tags that turn genes on and off are exquisitely sensitive to environment, to lifestyle factors, to what we eat, to how we exercise, um, to a whole range of things, which um, you know, actually we didn't realize were actually this susceptible um, to environmental influences. And so um, this really has changed a lot of scientific thinking around how integrative medicine 
and the the sort of the focus on self care and lifestyle changes that are, is so integral to integrative medicine approaches, like how they might actually uh, end up doing what they do, you know, how they work, how they might act. So it may be that you know whatever the um, either like meditation exercises or uh, the other mental more mentally based integrative medicine practices are, or perhaps the, some of the particular herbal remedies and other material that's associated with integrative medicine, perhaps the way that it works is actually by switching genes on and off, um, as opposed to like trying to have like a direct pharmacological effect, which is what used to be, you know, the understanding. So like if, um, like in traditional Ayurvedic medicine, you know, there's a, a particular herb that has been used traditionally for, for centuries called bacopa, you know, that's supposed to be used for uh, decreasing anxiety and decreasing stress and, and increasing our ability to adapt to stress. There's a whole range of these Ayurvedic herbs called adaptogens, and they're, they've basically been used uh, historically historically as ways to improve your resilience and improve your ability to meet whatever the, the challenges and stresses of your life are. When Bacopa is, is sort of studied uh, in a pharmacological way, like, oh, is Bacopa like Valium? Is, it, is that the way that it works in terms of decreasing anxiety? It turns out that no. No, it's nothing like Valium, and you know, it doesn't actually have any of the activity of, uh, of a benzodiazepine, which is what the Valium uh, family is in. But, you know, so then it might have been dismissed in the past because there wasn't a known pathway that sort of made sense in the Western biomedical model for how it might work to decrease anxiety. But now with epigenetics, it's opened up a whole new world because what, it, what now we're able to show is that, hey, if you study Bacopa, it turns out that, okay, yeah, it doesn't actually act at the uh, benzodiazepine receptors the way Valium might, but what it does do is it actually activates the cellular pathways in your body, it turns on the genes that actually help you produce GABA, which is like your own your own anti-anxiolytic uh, you know molecule that you, that you're able to make within your own brain. Um, so maybe that is the the sort of the missing link in trying to understand how a lot of these mechanisms of actions for integrative medicine modalities might work. So I just wanted to just put in this slide. I mean, there's there's just been so much exciting research on this, so I can't possibly cover all of it. But I just wanted to just uh, mention a highlight of a couple of these uh, these studies. So first of all, meditative practices, which are a really big part of the mind body. Uh, therapies, um, especially for for mental health and wellness, um, and these basically can mean uh, meditation that comes in the form of a prayer or mindful movement like yoga or tai chi or a specific mindfulness practice or specific yoga practice. What all of these meditative practices have in common is what Herbert Benson has called the relaxation response. So it's a kind of coordinated physiological response in which uh, we basically um, um, just relax and slow down. Our parasympathetic nervous system is kind of activated, and we basically decrease our metabolic rate. We decrease our heart rate, our respiratory rate, and our blood pressure. And so it's been known that this relaxation response has been associated with a lot of positive effects on meditation. But how exactly 
does this relaxation response work? Well, we've had some really exciting new epigenetic data that came out just uh, in the last three or four years that actually shows that when you are practicing this relaxation response and slowing down your breathing and, and slowing down your heart rate and all that, uh, one of the things that's happening is that all of these genetic these epigenetic changes are happening. So epigenetic changes actually um, alter the way that your mitochondria actually code for ATP, which is the production of energy. Uh, these epigenetic changes actually change the way your insulin is produced, the, the, the genes that code for insulin production. Insulin production actually goes up and allows you to more efficiently, if, more efficiently use the energy that's being produced by those mitochondria that have been activated through these epigenetic signals. And then it also decreases these genetic changes, these epigenetic changes, actually like decrease your uh, genetic uh, production, your, your genetic codes for various inflammatory cells. And the decrease in these inflammatory cells actually are implicated in depression and also in heart disease. So this may be the way that the relaxation response, it certainly has a psychological component to it that's very calming when you slow yourself down. But at the same time, it may also have this kind of effect at the, at the epigenetic level that uh, actually controls how your genes are expressed. So the, the latest trend is really to think about how mind over gene, instead of mind over matter, we can now say mind over gene, like we're actually able to change the way our genes function um, simply through using you know, various, uh, very simple devices that, uh, that are primarily cognitive or affective in their origin. Now, that's one model. Now, the Chinese herbs here uh, that I put here, they actually d directly act at the epigenetic level right away. Um, and it, in fact, it turns out that 30% of all the herbs that are used in traditional Chinese medicine actually modulate the epigenetic changes, or are actually modulated through epigenetic changes. And then, in fact, 99% of the herbs that were actually approved for use, uh, I believe it was in the United Kingdom, it turns out 99% of these actually ended up having epigenetic effects. So it's like really interesting because the ones that were actually approved for government by the government use uh, are probably the ones that have the most potent effects on the epigenome. Um, so this is just really just fascinating research. Um, and let's see what else. So on this slide, we also, I also have, of course, you know, so there are these targeted drugs that obviously act on the epi, uh, epigenetic. See, the epigenome are all, it's like collectively refers to all of those molecular tags that can be modulated. So when I say epigenome, that's what I'm referring to. Um, and then there's even ways now that diet is being studied, like various dietary changes may actually have effects on epigenetic expression as well. Dean Ornish right here up in Sausalito has done a lot of work on um, uh, prostate cancer and cardiovascular disease prevention. And it looks like he usually uses a combination of diet along with exercise and other stress reduction techniques. But it looks like, you know, um, in some of their research, they're finding that 
uh, that they're able to actually increase the activity of telomerase, which is an enzyme that is associated with um, cellular aging and the body's ability to kind of um, uh, effectively metabolize oxidative stress. So probably diet has a very important role to play. Perhaps there's an animal models. We're saying that uh, definitely in animal models, they've been able to show that the telomerase activity can be upregulated with gene switches um, uh, using dietary inputs. So it's very possible that even in humans that perhaps increase in telomerase activity that we're seeing through some dietary changes are getting mediated through the epigenome. And lastly, I put in placebo here because um, the, a lot of, uh, very little is known about the placebo response, but it's actually one of the most fascinating areas of research and study. And this also may be an area, as we understand more about epigenetics, we may be, may be better able to explain some of that placebo response. There's just been one very interesting study that's been uh, done in a fairly rigorous way that I just wanted to mention. Um, there, there were a group of people that had irritable bowel syndrome, IBS, which uh, is really a chronic condition, which is very difficult to manage and is associated with a lot of stress and depression and anxiety. Um, And uh, they were looking at a particular study in which uh, people with IBS were given uh, a placebo uh, for something, an inert inert agent that wasn't known to have any specific effects on modulating Uh, the symptoms of IBS. And it turns out that there were a a subset of people who did respond to this particular placebo, but those people that responded um, consistently had a particular ability. They had a particular gene variant that allowed them to, uh, that changed the way they cleared dopamine from their nerve synapses in the the GI tract. So dopamine is actually involved. It's thought to be a kind of a, a grand integrator neurotransmitter molecule in terms of understanding the placebo response and understanding rewards and motivations and so on. So if there's a gene variant which is actually able to like increase the level of dopamine that's available at a particular synapse, and that particular gene variant is associated with the so-called placebo, then maybe that placebo actually had an epigenetic effect in those people that had that particular gene variant and were actually able to produce more dopamine at the synapses. So there's a lot of mystery behind the placebo effect, and different agents are used in different drug trials for placebo, but it may be that we get a little bit closer through epigenetics to understanding the effect of some of those uh, placebo responses. So uh, this particular slide just uh, is getting at this idea that the pathways of healing for different CAM therapies can can start at any one of like four different levels, but the effects may end up through epigenetics affecting uh, all levels. So, for example, um, one, let's see, like like meditation in this example probably works in this, uh, so the different pathways are healing are the the cognitive and the affective, the physiological, cellular biochemistry, epigenetics, and then coming down to genetics. So it may be that meditation actually starts out primarily by working, let's say, at the cognitive affective level, uh, whereas an herbal remedy might first 
uh, work actually at the epigenetic level. Okay, and then yoga might, act, but then regardless of where it starts, what the meditation might start at the cognitive level, but then it might have, it might create a cascade of change, which actually then leads to the epigenetics. Because I told you in that previous slide that we know that meditation is actually, the relaxation response is actually, in the end, associated with all these epigenetic changes. And so even though in the immediate, uh, you may feel like, oh, it's really calming and relaxing and it's psychologically a good technique, it also ends up having epigenetic effects. And then likewise with the herbal remedy, which maybe starts out primarily by modulating the epigenome, but then by modulating the epigenome, it changes the way certain genes and molecules are expressed, which actually might affect the level of cortisol running around in your body, which then actually helps to increase you know, the parasympathetic nervous system. And so then you feel calmer and you feel less stressed ultimately uh, because of what started out as an epigenetic change. Um, so I'm just going to move on to the next slide. Uh, oh, this was a very complicated slide. I'm just not going to have time for this. But this is basically, this was a simplified version. Uh, this, this little slide was a simplified version of this. This is just trying to say that you know, there's a bi-directional pathway of healing. So it's called either the, the top down or the bottom up. So meditation kind of works from the top down. From the, it affects cognitive processes and eventually leads down you know, to epigenetic changes, whereas other uh, therapies like the herbal therapy, for example, could be bottom-up. And even yoga postures, you know, not meditative yoga, but yoga postures might work from the bottom-up in the sense that they actually change your muscle tone, which then might affect your, you know, parasympathetic nervous system, which then ends up actually affecting what neurotransmitters ultimately are released in your brain, which then makes you feel calmer. So it can work in both directions. So this is just a kind of a summation of those three big circles that I talked about and how all of these create the mandala of healing, uh, which is really important to integrated mental health care. So now I want to get to Ayurveda. Um, so Ayurveda, I like to think of as actually being a 5,000-year-old tradition of the first personalized medicine. It's a personalized holistic healthcare model. So even though Western medicine is only just now moving towards this idea that you can't use a one-size-fits-all approach to treating people, Ayurveda actually had this profound insight more than 5,000 years ago. And what I did here was I actually took a slide that was from the personalized medicine talk that was about using molecular profiling to actually choose how to treat a particular individual and like tailor the treatment to that individual. So um, what we're doing, what we're looking at here is a particular wellness marker. So let's say um, this might be like uh, our uh, cognitive, like having a good cognitive function. Let's say we measure it by scores on some IQ test or some type of cognitive test. You know, in order to maintain wellness, we want to have that be nice and steady over the course of our life and not decline. If it starts to decline, then we end up having you know, cognitive changes and impairments and so on. So the idea here would be to keep, keep uh, the therapy, if it was effective, would sort of keep us at a nice steady line here. So you know, in this model, uh, some people do end up actually benefiting, but as we've seen before, because it's not really personalized, you know, a large number of them actually decline, and then some of them decline really fast, perhaps even due to side effects of, of the particular treatment. Now, Ayurveda actually um, has this profound insight from a very, very long time ago that, you know, if you tailor the treatment 
to who the person is that has the condition, not what the disease is, but who the person is that has the condition, that that is your way of succeeding. And that's the way that you can actually, no matter what profile that person fits into, whether it's profile A, B, or C, they all end up having a good response in terms of maintaining their cognitive function. So I actually just superimposed this slide that had to do with personalized medicine into the three big uh, constitutional types in Ayurveda, which are called Vata, Pitta, and Kapha. So I'm going to explain a little bit more about that, but I just wanted to just start off by showing this by, um, by just uh, showing the slide to say that, you know, this... This, these uh, insights about personalized medicine are not new. They've been around for a long time. And most indigenous healing traditions, also traditional Chinese medicine, uses a very similar approach in terms of having the idea that they're different types, you know, wood types, fire types, earth types, and that you can really tailor treatment to a particular typology as opposed to, like, the, the disease itself. So what is Ayurveda? So Ayurveda is India's indigenous health and healing system, and it translates from Sanskrit into meaning the science of living. And in the Ayurvedic worldview, uh, basically everything in the universe, including we human beings, are made up of five great elements. And these elements are space, air, fire, water, and earth. Now, these five elements refer to qualities that are found in nature rather than the concrete substances of space or fire or earth. So, for example, earth symbolizes the quality of solidity, while water symbolizes the quality of fluidity. So in a human being, our bones and our teeth might be said to have mostly earth element because they're so solid, whereas blood and saliva might be composed mostly of water element because of their fluidity. Now, physical matter is only the grossest expression of these five great elements, but all these bioenergetic forces that we collectively call life, from respiration and metabolism to feeling and thinking, they also are the expression of these same five great elements. But these same five great elements in more subtle, dynamic manifestation called doshas. And the five great elements are supposed to pair off into three main combinations or doshas. And these are vata, pitta, and kapha dosha. And I'm going to try to explain what... Uh, that refers to here. So the, the dosha is ba- each dosha, so in this model, each dosha, first of all, is said to simultaneously manifest at the level of body and mind and spirit. And so each dosha has specific expressions at the somatic level, the mental level, and also at even more subtle energetic levels. And now the vata dosha is considered to be the uh, energy of movement. So that would mean movement at the body level at the mind level and also at the subtle level. So the somatic level of vata would be, you know, the respiration, the movement of our lungs back and forth, the beating of our heart, the contraction of the uterus during childbirth, and so on. At the mental level, the wandering of the brain is also considered to be an expression of vata because we say in Ayurveda that thought is actually said to be the fastest movement of all. Then pitta dosha manifests as all that heats or transforms. So at the somatic level, we can say that uh, digestion or metabolic heat are manifestations of pitta, whereas at the mental level, the fire of the intellect is called pitta. Like we use the expression, oh, someone is really bright or someone is really sharp when we're trying to say they're really smart. And that is actually, those are qualities of fire, which is sharp 
bright, illuminating, penetrating. Um, so these are all supposed to be fire qualities. And then kapha dosha manifests as all that binds in the human being. So at the somatic level, the holding together of the joints, the formation of the body mass is called kapha, is, is gov- governed by kapha. At the mental level, kapha actually manifests as memory and as a capacity for attachment. Because when we bind loved ones to us through our emotions, that's a function of kapha. Um, or when we remember facts and able to recall them, that's a function of binding power. Now, in the Ayurvedic model, it's important to remember that each of us needs vata, pitta, and kapha. It's, they're indispensable to life. So all of us have all three of these doshas. Um, but each person has a very unique proportion of, of each dosha. And that unique combination of doshas is called the person's individual constitution. Now, the way that the ancient Ayurvedic physicians came to determine what your Ayurvedic constitution was is by doing a careful inventory of basic mind-body parameters that exist when the person person is in good health, because it's understood that when they're in good health, or at least at their optimal health, that that is when their mind-body complex is functioning at its best, and so that represents um, their inborn constitutional makeup, because the, the, we're, we're strongest when we're, uh, when we're operating at a level where our inborn doshas are, are manifesting um, uh, in those same proportions. So... Uh, like for so these are some of the mind body parameters that are used to determine what the relative strength of each dosha is um, in that particular individual. So this is not molecular profiling, and certainly did not have the um, you know the, the scientific technology for that. But it still pays an exquisite amount of attention to so many different parameters to try to really understand how does this person function metabolically? How do they function psychologically? How do they function in terms of their movement, their dietary patterns, and so on? And by doing a really close scrutiny of um, of these various parameters. Um, the, uh, the, it's possible in Ayurveda to sort of classify people according to three main constitutional types, vata, pitta, or kapha. So nobody's really a pure vata, pure pitta, or pure kapha, because as I said, we all need all three doshas. But we can have a predominance of one. And so this is what we mean when we say someone is a vata type, a pitta type, or a kapha type. And so for just, I'm just going to take vata just as an example here. So someone with a predominance of vata will tend to have mind-body attributes that are related to the qualities of space and air. Because if you remember going back to this slide, see how vata dosha is made up of space and air? And since space and air, the qualities of space and air are lightness, coolness, and mobility, those same qualities are going to pervade the mind-body complex of the vata-dominant person. So on a physical level, that would lead to having a very light, lean, bony build. Their tendency towards movement would be reflected in their intrinsic rate of speaking or walking, which would be very quick um, and fast. Um, And then their digestive powers would also be very erratic because, because... Air, which is a big part of vata, is very uh, erratic too because sometimes it goes whoosh like a big gust 
and then other times it's really still. And so the vata dosha in the digestive tract of that person may also be marked by a lot of erraticness. So a lot of constipation one day and perhaps too much the next day. Um, and so, uh, they, and then they, because there's so much inherent lightness and coolness uh, within vata due to being made up of space and air elements, they have a particular sensitivity to, to wind and cold. Um, and then at the mental level, those same qualities of lightness and mobility are reflected in having a very quick, flexible mind, which learns quickly, but then also forgets quickly, and may vacillate a lot on decisions and have a hard time sticking to a particular path because they kind of see all the different possibilities. And then under stress, that can give a person a tendency to become very, very anxious or unsettled. So I'm not going to have time here to go through like each one of these three doshas, but you know I'll have this slide up for you to like peruse um, at your leisure uh, on the on the website. But this really gives you an idea of how the the fire element, which is uh, the governing element, uh, the governing dosha for a pitta type, how it really affects their whole mind-body complex, and then similarly for the, the kapha individual. And I'll get back to this in just a minute uh, when I give you a little example uh, at the very end. So this slide is basically um, trying to put together like that top-down, bottom-up slide, remember, that I talked about in the molecular profile, in the, in the uh, personalized medicine slide, about mechanisms of action for integrative medicine? Well, it turns out that in the Ayurvedic worldview, too, they have this very profound insight that there is an interconnection between these different levels of functioning. And so because there's an interconnection between these different levels of functioning, um, a dosha basically transcends or crosses, you know, all of these dimensions. So if you want, if there's a particular dosha that's out of balance, the way to correct that balance is actually, it can be done by making an intervention at any dimension that is covered by that dosha, as opposed to just the dimension where the symptoms manifest. And this is like a very profound insight, because what this means is that if you're having predominantly psychological uh, uh, manifestations of stress, feeling very, very anxious or depressed, you know, it may be that... um, people uh, might think, oh, well, then that means that the cure is also in some kind of a psychological intervention. But perhaps that person is so frozen, you know, from whatever their depressive or anxious condition is that they really can't take in cognitive behavioral therapy or they can't really take in, you know, a psychological intervention. So then in that case, in Ayurveda, we would say that, well, that's okay. Let's start with their food and their sleep. And then we can then build on that and then progress up to a place where they could actually take in some psychological um, interventions. So, and then the reason that this is possible is because doshas actually manifest at every single dimension. Um, I just wanted to get back to this slide for a minute. One of the key points I wanted to make in this slide is that we are as I said, born with a particular constitutional makeup, which determines you know, how much vata, pitta, or kapha that we have. And when we make lifestyle choices that keep vata, pitta, and kapha in balance, which means in the same levels that they existed when we were first born or when we were at our optimal time of functioning, that leads to optimal health. 
Okay, because doshas are dynamic. That's the understanding in Ayurveda. Doshas are not static. They're energies. And so they can shift and move. And because of these qualities of uh, the five great elements which make up the doshas, they can be affected by the environment. So the vata person, you know, as I said, has so much air and space quality, right, in their, in their constitutional makeup. So what that means is that when they are under stress... If they start to cut back on their sleep, and if they start eating you know, cold, readily available food, like maybe they grab a cold yogurt from their refrigerator instead of making a warm, uh, hot meal for themselves, over time what that does as a response to stress, over time what that does is it throws vata dosha off balance. You're feeding the vata dosha with, because the vata dosha is already very cold, mobile, erratic, spacey, right? So if you're eating cold foods, if you're not resting long enough so that you're doing too much movement, you know, you're actually adding to the inherent uh, elements that are already part of your makeup. So then you become what's called vata deranged or vata excess. Vata gets way, way too high. And then that's like when you basically get into that stressful state where you're just anxious, unsettled, unfocused, not able to uh, carry out what it is that you need to do. And so similarly with pitta, since pitta has like fire element as its predominant um, element. So uh, if the pitta person starts to, you know, eat way too much hot food, or you know, let's go to a hot climate to live, or um, basically uh, engages too much in, you know, sort of like hot activities, <laughs> um, too much sexual activity, too much physical activity, too much uh, competitive activities that sort of raise up feelings of competitive, you know, jealousy. Or you know, or envy, or whatever. Then you're going to like throw that person's pitta dosha off balance, and so this is a very profound um, insight, you know, from the Ayurvedic paradigm. Because what this shows is that we have a responsibility, you know, in terms of whether we stay in good health or not, um, but by by the lifestyle choices that we make, and those lifestyle choices eventually downstream end up in particular diseases. That's in the Ayurvedic model. So the Vata person, if they just go for too long dealing with stress in a way that actually goes against their constitution, then by cutting back on sleep or by you know eating cold foods and so on, then what ends up happening is they are more likely to develop diseases or conditions that are considered to be Vata diseases. So Vata diseases are uh, like the whole nervous system is considered to be a Vata system because because remember, vata is movement and speed, and the nervous system is like the epitome of movement and speed within our um, makeup. And so neurological conditions are actually, neurological and psychiatric conditions tend to be among the first ways that vata uh, excess can be manifest. Or vata is also a lot of air, right? It has a lot of air and space quality. So it also tends, and there's a lot of air that's actually found in our lung, that's found in our bones, you know, those airy, those, um, uh, those kind of like holes that you kind of see on those cross sections of bone. So that is, uh, so vata people tend to develop lung and bone disease. Uh, and in the Ayurvedic model, this is explained by the fact that these doshas 
act in particular ways to predispose people and individuals to particular disease. So this is starting to look a lot like that molecular profiling where we say that based on a particular genetic makeup, you have more of a you know, propensity to develop certain diseases or to be treated by different types of interventions because epigenetics are different. And so this just gives us a very powerful new lens to kind of understand what uh, this very, very ancient system of medicine might have intuited um, in it from a different standpoint. So um, these are some of the different... You know, Ayurveda is just exquisitely sensitive uh, to all dimensions of our um, our life. So remember in the slide with the epigenetics, the top level was actually cognitive and affective, but in the Ayurvedic worldview, the top level here is actually subtle energy fields. And so we say that you can even actually affect change by uh, by actually having uh, making an intervention that's even at a subtle energetic level, and then it can like move down actually and have a, a found, profound effects lower down. So like the chakra system within the yogas is considered to be one of those very subtle uh, energy therapies. So um, so the chakras are supposed to respond to particular vibrations or to particular frequencies of color. And so one very subtle energy therapy that is used within Ayurveda when particular disturbances are seen is that if it's uh, felt, let's say there, there's seven different chakras. So let's say that the chakra that is considered to be um, sort of uh, blocked or, or not manifesting enough is a is the the heart chakra. Then we say that there's a certain kind of vibration or a certain kind of uh, color frequency that would be important for helping to heal that chakra. And so the person might be advised to to wear those colors or to or to make a particular chant during their meditation that has those vibrations that are important for that particular uh, chakra level. So what I'm going to do is uh, I'm going to just go right to my example my case example, because <laughs> I'm not going to have time to cover all the rest of the Ayurvedic medicine. But I hope this case example is something that can really just illuminate what it is that I've been saying about the power of Ayurveda to, um, to address um, each individual where they are, meet them where they are, and be able to help them heal uh, in the way that is actually the best for their particular constitution. So I'm just going to tell, give you a little vignette. So let's imagine a family with three very, very close-knit sisters. Uh, the parent of these three close-knit sisters, uh, let's say the mother, dies in, a tra- uh, dies in a tragic car accident, and then the remain and then leaves behind these three girls, all of whom are heartbroken. Over the next six months, all three girls each neglect themselves and become quite debilitated due to this sort of unresolved grief and mourning. But each of them manifests this in a different way, in her own unique way. One sister, whose constitution is predominantly vata, manifests her distress in the characteristic manner of vata excess. Okay? She becomes very, very anxious. She can't sleep at night. She loses weight. She's constantly fidgeting and flitting about, but not really making any sort of purposeful um, uh, action. Now, the other sister, 
Um, we'll, so we'll call the first sister, who's the Vata type, we'll call her Vera, to make it easy to remember, Vera. The second sister is Pamela. Now, Pamela is like a very driven executive type person, you know, who loves to be in charge and like, loves to feel that she's in control of her life. But when her mother dies, she's devastated. She feels like this totally wasn't in her control. She can't change this. And she's just not able to cope with this loss of control. And she starts um, drinking too much. She starts um, taking on too much work to try to like forget what's happening in her life by signing up for more and more work projects. Um, she starts um, overindulging in hot, spicy food, which you know kind of feels like her comfort food and go-to food when she's under distress. And over time, she also ends up basically becoming a very, very irritable, unhappy person. She's a very sad, depressed person, but her type of sadness is one in which you know she's very angry all the time. Uh, I'm actually going to go to this. So she's going to have a, a pitta-type sort of depressive reaction, where she's just angry all the time. She also can't sleep very well, very fitful sleeping, constantly tossing and tur- uh, turning. Their weight usually doesn't change that much, though, for pittas. But, and, wh- and like the vata-type, maybe there's like more motor agitation, but the motor agitation takes on a kind of like ferocious pacing you know, tiger-like tension, you know, in all, in all her muscles. And she's really abrupt and cuts off her friends and coworkers and really is unpleasant to be around. Now, the, the last sister, we'll call her Kathy, she's Kapha type. And she manifests according to her constitution, you know, and she basically just ends up um, just becoming very, very numb and frozen. You know, she just ends up oversleeping. She stays in, in bed all the time at night, you know, watching TV and eating ice cream out of the carton and gaining a lot of weight and barely responding to, to the friends and family who try to visit and who try to interact with her. And normally, she's a very socially active person. She, you know, she's a homemaker. She's with her kids. She loves spending activities, spend time doing activities with them. But now she just doesn't. She just kind of like retreats to her bedroom and just kind of shuts the curtains and watches TV. And these, in the, in the Western worldview, these are all three actually... Um, they all three meet criteria for major depressive disorder. But in Ayurveda, we say, you know, these are actually not really the same, the same problem. These, these, the, the, each, in each of these cases, there's a different dosha that's been thrown off balance by the same stress of losing their dear mother. And so, but each of these girls reacts to that loss and that stress in her particular way. And, and then eventually through, um, through an exe- you know, kind of vata excess, pitta excess, or kapha excess, ends up in what we would call a full-blown depression. So, you know, from an Ayurvedic standpoint, the remedy for each girl would be very, very different, you know, based on their constitutional type. And so for... Um, uh, the person, let's say in that last example, the, the Kathy who had the kapha excess, you know, she would actually be encouraged to undertake a range of remedies that are designed to lower kapha dosha. And those might involve switching to a light, spicy vegetarian diet with lots of greens, specific yoga postures and breathing exercises that are intended to stimulate the nervous system rather than to calm it down. Like the vata type person actually would want yoga exercises that would be more stimulating. I, I'm sorry, <laughs> more calming. 
whereas the cuffer type person would, would need something that's more stimulating. Um, and then we might also recommend from an Ayurvedic standpoint invigorating massage with kapha lowering oils, medicinal teas with ginger and other ingredients which are supposed to be warming and actually trying to counter the, the kapha elements within her constitution. And she might be cautioned against exposure to kapha-stimulating environments, like living in a cold, foggy city like San Francisco, or taking moonlight walks on the beach. We would actually say, take a, you know, a walk in the sunshine in a protected, non-windy place, like a forest, instead of like a cold, windy area, like a beach, you know, especially at night, which is just going to exacerbate her kapha uh, tendencies, and, um, and, and so on. So the idea, and for each of these girls, we would actually recommend a different, you know, different uh, set of um, interventions based on their particular uh, mind-body complex so that they can regain doshic equilibrium and then be able to effectively metabolize and assimilate whatever the stresses are that they meet in their life. So I'll just close right there. I'm so sorry I had to like cut off a lot of the description of the Ayurveda. Um, but if any of you are interested in learning more about this um, particular paradigm, uh, I have some wonderful books here. These are all books that I use and recommend to my patients related to Ayurveda. And, and then these are some books that are related to the, the overview of integrative men, uh, mental health care, like the relaxation response, you know, what it means to be mindful, you know, some uh, herbal remedies for anxiety and so on. Um, so I hope you avail yourself of some of these resources. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.